Thank you, Dave. My name is Jack, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm sober today by the grace of God and the miracle and fellowship of this program. For that, I am truly grateful. I also want to thank the, uh, the conference committee for inviting me to share my experience, strength, and hope with you. I still don't know why they invited me. I was sitting around uh, in the conference and down in the lobby, carefully trying to find another Indian. <laughs> I saw a guy walking down the lobby there with a with a Mohawk haircut. But it was one of those punk rockers. <laughs> but I'm very grateful to be here, sober, and enjoying life that I never imagined to the degree that I enjoyed. The happiness and the seven promises as stated to us in the big book on page 83, I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would be able to experience the things that I've experienced in Alcoholics Anonymous. As a result of this family, the result is fellowship, fellowship of love. And coming in here, I, I, I keep thinking, you know, uh, how fortunate it is for me to, to be invited here. I think the last time an Indian got invited to a, a deal like this, it was about 300 years ago. And they call it Thanksgiving. <laughs> so you folks are really, uh, you've really done something great in your history because it isn't something that happens every day. And I uh, have an opportunity to meet many wonderful alcoholics, anonymous, and other members, Aladon members, in these conferences, and I have myself a great time, because, you know, the inhibitions are down, the defenses are down, and we, we feel the wonderful fellowship, the, the, the common deliverance that we have through the grace of God, through Alcoholics Anonymous. And many times people, uh, you know, are inhibited, they ask questions of me that they would would have liked to ask a long time ago. You know, they uh, the, the hundred questions you wanted to ask about an Indian were, were afraid to ask. You know, that type of a thing. <laughs> I remember one time a lady came up to me and he, she said to me, uh, Jack, why is it that the uh, Indians always screamed and hollered when they were attacking a wagon train? I was a tough one. Because I never attacked the wagon trade. <laughs> but I didn't once ride a horse without a saddle. I was okay when it was walking, but when it started to gallop, I tell the ice cream to holler. <laughs> One time, an Englishman, I met an Englishman. In an AA conference, and he came up to me and he says, I say that, you know, the way they talk. <laughs> I say, Chop, is it true that you aboriginals still hunt for your food? And I said, sure we do. Really? He says. Yes, I, every morning my daddy throws me out of my bed and uh, uh, sends me out the door and asks me to go get my breakfast. She said, what do you do? I said, well, I, I put a little snare, snare in the bush and wait for a rabbit to come along. And I hide in the bushes. And he says, then what? And then I sit there and I sit and I make sounds like a carrot. I was out in the bush with a couple of members of Alcoholics Anonymous one time. They were older folk. 
And you know, there's always seems to be a mystique about Indians. And these guys wanted me to call a moose, you know, in, in a worse way. And we came along these moose tracks, and they said, well, what, what, what kind of tracks are those? And I said, those are moose tracks. And he said, call them. I said, I can't. They're, they're, they're old tracks. Well, why can't you call them? I said, okay, but it'll cost you. Because it's going to be long distance. <laughs> You know, in Winnipeg, in 1980, the Pope visited Winnipeg, and many people wanted to see His Holiness. And there was an Indian camp just outside the perimeter where the Pope was holding masses. And one of the camps there was a, was a very spirit, a spiritual man. You know, we call it medicine man. But they really are spiritual people. And every morning, as the sun came up, and when the when the Pope kept, kept uh, said his blessing, the Zinian too would would come out of his teepee and he would face the, the 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 western sky and he would lift up his peace pipe and he would give supplications and gratitude and thanks to his higher power. The pop, the Pope, he saw, he, he, he saw this Indian very moved, emotionally. And he stared at him. And for a brief moment their eyes met, and the Pope became very nervous, didn't know how to respond. And he said, of course, you know, the, the normal reaction is to say, how? The Pope says, how? Well, the Indian, down his pipe and he looked at the Pope and says, How? Page 58, chapter 5, Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I see that our theme tonight is Let It Begin With Me. And many, many years ago, as we all know, a man who was afflicted with this disease that we call alcoholism got touched by a phenomena in his life that caused him to establish an organization that we now enjoy. It began with Bill W. And never in my wildest dreams in the times that I suffered the blackness of my addiction the desperate hope that I had in my recovery of ever finding any, any of this relenting agony that I felt down deep inside of me, never in my wildest dreams that I ever found, but somewhere, someplace in that inebriated society, it found me. And I'm so very grateful. And you people have gathered in here, whether you're members of Alcoholics Anonymous, whether you're Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon or al we come together as a family to celebrate this life. Because whether you're afflicted or affected, the blackness is all the same. And whether you're an Indian and whether you're a Norwegian or whoever you are, the pain is all the same. Because when an Indian hurts, or when you hurt, it's the same. And the kind of power that brings healing to the life of those people who come before uh, in, 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 in entering this program is all the same. And the, the, to the degree, and each of us experience this program is the degree that it was all intended to. There, there, God is no respecter of persons. And I want to tell you just a little bit about how it was. I'm not going to spend too much time with it because our story is disclosed in a general way. But I remember as a, as, a, as, a, as a very young boy growing up on a reservation. 
As far as I can remember, I began to develop the kind of feelings that I had as an alcoholic. When I began to realize my world around me in the reservation, I saw the people that were coming into the reservation. They were, they were everybody was everybody that was anything was non-Indian or white. The teacher, he was white. My teacher, my minister, he was white. The storekeeper, he was white. The police, he was white. The doctor, the nurses, and the list goes on. The priest, the nuns, everybody that was anything was non-Indian. And very early in my life, and without taking any drink of the necessary, I was not addicted, I was not a practicing alcoholic, I began to feel this hole inside of me that says, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I gotta have a feeling. I gotta feel good. But I never could find it. And as I grew up, and I kept wishing, dreaming, that I could have just a little bit of power that these people on a reservation had over me. Just a little bit. And then I thought, well, I, I, maybe education is the answer, is the answer to my problem. So I, I was enrolled into these, one of these boarding schools where, uh, uh, it, it was a very horrible experience. And I'm not going to go to a lot of extent to tell you about the experiences that I had on a boarding school. But I developed a very deep resentment towards the organized churches. Because this particular boarding school was run by missionaries. And every time I did something, these missionaries, whoever they are, these God-loving folks, you know, they they uh, they chastised me in a way that we would we would call uh, child abuse today, because I was literally whipped. One time I was I was strung up with pipes over overhead with my wrists, and I was stood naked, and they whipped me, and I developed a very deep resentment towards the organized church, particularly with a lot of white people. And at that time, at a very young man, adolescence, all I could see was a very cruel world. At a very young age, I, I had a, an accident that broke my leg. That compounded. I was trapped in a misery that I did not understand. I did not understand how I could cope with this blackness inside of me. Hate. Resentment. Then one day, I, about 19 years old, I was introduced to, to the drink. I remember standing there with a broken leg and trying to dance and trying to ask girls to dance with me and I felt very ugly, very disgusting, not feeling very good. I just wanted to feel good. I did not know how. It talks about in a big book about loneliness. Then he will know loneliness such as few people do. He'll be at the jumping off place. Where options become so few that sometimes even death looks like a reasonable option. But when I took that drink, I was six feet tall and bulletproof. Felt good. I fell in love with the feeling of alcohol. Later on in my life, I, I became became a little more assertive. I started playing guitar, piano. I played 11 instruments. I started my own little country western band in a little bar bar, and in the uh, part time when I was going to university. And then I started to develop something. You know, I, uh, 
that's that's still a problem today. In other words, uh, my my ego started to come out, my my, my pride, and I, I had this big dream that one day I was going to become another Johnny Cash. And then I I packed up my car. I thought I'd go to Nashville. I packed up my car and I went to Nashville. And when I got to Nashville, I didn't know I was right in the middle of this redneck country. I used to listen to all these country western songs. Y'all come, y'all come to see me by and by. And all those little, lot of folksy songs, you know, where you feel like hugging somebody, you know, it was, it was so friendly. And I, when I got there, I was walking down the street and, uh, in one of the southern towns in Tennessee and the bars, the one side there was, there were the colored folk and the other side were the white folk. And the doors there were nailed, and this is back in 1962. On the doors it says, no Indians allowed. No Negroes allowed. Oh, that type of thing. You know, I thought, oh, wow. Remember, I was down to uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, and I my car broke down, so we took a, a city bus to, to try to get one of the one of our tapes, our demo tapes, to be heard. And I was with a couple of white guys, and they jumped in this bus, and they sat down right next to the to the driver that cross seat in there, and I sat with them. The driver looked back at me, and he says, "In the back, boy." I look back there, all I can see is colored folk. I said to him, well, I'm not going to go back there. I'm an Indian. I'm not a colored folk, I'm an Indian. He says, you're an Indian? I said, proudly, yes, I'm an Indian. He says, out. We don't allow dirty, lousy Indians on this bus. The only, the only people that can ride here are Mexicans and Negroes. So I had to oblige and walk out. Feeling. Whole inside of me. That disgusting feeling of blackness, of loneliness. That desperate feeling of wanting to have to feel good. Wanting to be loved. And our next bus come along, I jumped in, I said, Buenos dias, amigo. (laughs) And I went straight to the back. (laughs) Times were tough then. I was down in Skid Road. I did little jobs like picking cotton, the odd jobs like that, and I finally went, ended up in California. You know, they say, go west, young man, go west. So west I went. Got over there, I got into, I got into a blackout. Woke up one morning, I was in a, uh, I was in a novelty store. I, I, I didn't know how I got in there. I, I was having these blackouts. About this time, I was getting these frequent blackouts, and I couldn't understand why. Uh, I, I I thought I was uh, so unique, and I thought maybe uh, I had a cancer or tumor or something in my brain, and uh, it was it was causing these memory lapses that I that I wouldn't dare tell anybody. But here I was. I was. I woke up in in this novelty store, and I couldn't tell. I couldn't. I couldn't find where I came from. I couldn't find a broken window. I was desperate. I was, I was, I was panicking. And I looked outside the door and I could see people walking back and forth on, on Figueroa in Los Angeles and Figueroa Street. And I pushed the door like this, you know, the, the kind of doors you go out. And when I pushed it, I didn't know there was a chain on the other side. And I tripped the alarm. So I sat there. With all those feelings that I'm so familiar with. Feelings of loneliness, desperation, and all the blackness that goes with addiction. And then I just sat there and waited for the cops. They took me and booked me for burglary. I couldn't defend myself because I couldn't say anything. I, I had no alibi. I had I couldn't even explain how what I was doing in there. Luckily, nothing was missing. And when I was in there, a minister came along and we preached the gospel. 
And I thought, well, you know, I never really, in all my entire life as an alcoholic, and even today, I really never do anything for nothing. And I don't think there's been very many of us that do anything for nothing. Even in this gathering, there was, there was a payoff. There is a payoff for, for working the steps. There is a, a reciprocal benefit, a, a real value in having a sponsor. There's a real premium in attending AA meetings. And at that time when I saw this preacher preaching the gospel and telling me, you know, if I fell down on my knees and I asked God's forgiveness, that, that God would come into my heart and I would become a new creature. And as I listened to him talking about God and God's love, I said to myself, what's in it for me to accept this philosophy? What's in it for me? What's in it for me is perhaps... This is a way to get out of this jail. So I fell down on my knees, tears coming down my in my cheek, crying out, Lord, forgive me. And sure enough, the preacher put a good work for me and I was I was paroled out to a halfway house where there was a it was a Christian thing. We used to go out every morning out in the street and panhandle for this place so we can keep our key. And I was very sincere at the time, you know. I mean, I wasn't drinking, but the blackness is still here. The potential to be dishonest, the potential to lie, the potential to be immoral, and all the things that I was, was still inside. The only thing I did was quit drinking. And so when I was standing out in the street one day, a couple of girls came by and they said, uh, they were very sick and they said, could we please ask you for a couple of dollars? And I said, I got nothing. The only thing that I have here is in this little box and it belongs to Reverend so-and-so. Well, I said, let's drink that. Well, I thought for a while. And I wondered. <laughs> but I really didn't have no defense. So I pulled a Jimmy Swaggart. <laughs> My spirituality went one way if I had any. And I was back to the blackness and the sickness of alcoholism. Well, I'm not going to tell you all about my past. But one day I ran into a fella. He's dead now. He was my sponsor. And for all the times that I used to come into AA, go into treatment centers and to halfway houses and back into AA and back drunk and back into the halfway house and so forth in that vicious cycle where I was getting treatment. One time I thought to myself, well, gee, there's something's got to happen here. Something has got to change because I am not able to get this program. Everybody seems to get it, but not Jack. There is something the matter with me. Maybe it is true that Indians are really that different. So one day I enrolled into one of these chemical dependency schools, and I went to your course and uh, uh, popping through, popping through Valiums right through the course. I wasn't drinking, but I was stretched out in my studies, and I uh, popped Valium, and I was sober. I wasn't drinking, and finally I got my certificate to become an alcoholism or addiction counselor. And I thought, I got it made. Now I got a career in sobriety. <laughs> I'm talking to alcoholics, I'm talking to drug addicted people, I'm helping them out, and I'm getting paid for it. In the doctor's opinion, it talks about an alcoholic. And it talks about an alcoholic who does not work a program. And inevitably it happens to those people who are chronic, and I believe those who are chronic, it happens to all of us. And it says there after a while, sobriety becomes intolerable. I used to come to these AA meetings and I used to sit there and I used to think, how in the heck am I going to stay sober sitting here 
listening to people tell me their stories, drinking black coffee in a smoke-filled room. I'd rather be out shooting pool in some bar and playing pool and having a good time and laughing and joking than to be here in this meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I just couldn't see the need. And if I was ever honest, when my time came to say something among alcoholics, you know, in, in, in relating to my experience, strength, and hope, and if I was if I was to be honest, I could truly say back then that Alcoholics Anonymous really sucks because it was not doing anything for me. And as I was being an alcoholism or addiction counselor, all of a sudden something happened to me. I became restless, irritable, discontented. The blackness was catching up to me. You know some of the cliches that we say that we hear in Alcoholics Anonymous where it says hang in there. I was hanging in there. It was a white knuckle sobriety. I was on my own. And pretty soon, uh, sobriety became so painful. And in my desperate need to feel relief, I went back drinking. My desperate need to feel okay. I could not understand the phenomena of the blackness, the addiction of alcoholism. I could not understand it. And it goes on to say, for these people, uh, they, they, they are so, it becomes like a normal way to their life. That unless, again, they can get an experience equivalent to that of taking a drink, they will inevitably drink again. So I began to understand that if I was to achieve happiness and serenity and peace and the kind of thing that I wanted, I would have to have a spiritual experience. I would have to have an entire psychic change. There would have to be a, a, a 180 degree turn in my life. when I, Within myself, I could not see that I had a power to do that. That we were alcoholic, A, that we could not manage our lives. B, that no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God could and would if, if he were sought. I didn't understand this program. I didn't want to understand it. I was, uh, my character was the type of way that I, that I, this characteristic of me today. And that is I'm always looking for a quick fix. And the more I began to understand through the, through my sponsor and, and, and relating to me his own experience, strength and hope, I began to understand a little bit about myself that I was really looking for a quick, a quick fix, an easier, softer way. I also understood that I had two problems. One, I was an alcoholic. The other was I was an intellectual. I had to figure out everything. Alcoholism was killing me. My intellectualism was preventing me from getting well. Because I believed that all that I ever learned and all that I've ever experienced and all ever, everything that I've ever known, academically and experienced, that's all that existed around me. I was a very prejudiced man. I was prejudiced against the organized churches. I was prejudiced against white people. I was prejudiced. I had I had more resentments than Ayatollah Khomeini. <laughs> and then I met a man, like I said, I was going to tell you about this man, Walt. He's dead now. And he was a professor, you know, being an intellectual, I kind of thought, well, uh, I can't have that guy for a sponsor. He's only a bricklayer, you know. What does he know about a, a, a drunken Indian limping around and trying to find peace? But Walt, he had a, a lot of infirmity in his body. He, uh, he had, a, he had, a, he had uh, emphysema. He had to carry this little oxygen for him to breathe. But he was the happiest man that I ever seen. I never heard him complain once. And he used to relate to me about his wife and how he treated his wife. And I began to understand, you know, about the kind of chauvinistic ideas that I had about women. 
And God bless my wife. She's over there. She, I'm still learning how to love her. I'm still learning how to listen. I'm, I'm still being taught in how to love. Not only by her, but by you people. It's an ongoing education. But Walt is the man that opened my eyes one day. And, and I used to see him running around in this, in, into AA meetings. And every time he came to an AA meeting, he had a, a van full of Indians. And you could hear laughter as they, as they, as they came into the, in, into the AA meeting. And Walt was surrounded by these Indian folk. And I thought to myself, what has this guy got that I don't have? Charisma or what? So I one day asked Walt, I said, Walt, would you become my, would you be my sponsor? And please let me know, share me your secret. He says, I'd, I'd be glad to, Jack. I'm glad you asked, he told me. He gave me some ground rules. He said, I'm not going to be your banker, you know, those kind of ground rules. He says, you're going to have to read your AA book. AA book, I thought. Is this where he's getting it? I thought this thing was written back in 1935 for a couple of white guys. <laughs> what the heck do they know about Indians? But he read to me a chapter that said there in, in, in one of the first editions that was written by Alex Anonymous when there was only a membership of over 100 men and women. We have Alcoholics Anonymous. It said there, this written was written for alcoholics by alcoholics to show alcoholics precisely how we have recovered. It's the purpose of this book. He said precisely. It isn't something that you, you're going to have to work out equations. You're not going to have to do much research. You're not going to even have to do any research. It's right there. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. How simple can it be? Of course, I, I really didn't buy it at first, but, but Walt kept driving in this to me. I would call him up and I was having a lot of problems, a lot of, a lot of, uh, social problems, economic problems, and all the other blackness that were there. Problems that resulted in a blackness. You know, that being irritable. All the things that I felt, the loneliness, the terrible feeling inside. I would call up Walt and I'd say, Walt, something is happening to me. And he'd say, are you reading your big book? Well, I said, I heard it read in a, in a meeting, you know, chapter 5. And uh, I, I think that's good enough. No, it's not good enough, he said. He said, are you working your step? Well, I think I got uh, step one working right now. Can you believe your life is unmanageable? I guess so. You know, I, I know I was an alcoholic. I had a track record. You know, I mean, any, I, I, if anybody was an alcoholic, it was me. I, all, all the things that I did was, was, you know, that little questionnaire they have there. Uh, you fill it out and... You, if you get six wrong and uh, you're an alcoholic, well, I had them all right. They're all wrong, you know, that kind of stuff. I knew that I was an alcoholic. But Walt, he, he, uh, he would say to me, he would, he would encourage me to read my big book, and so I read. And he told me one time, read it five times. See what happens. So I read it five times, and it began to sink in a little. And then I would drop off again, and he would say, have you been reading it? And again, I would say, no. I remember I, he used to tease me. He used to uh, kind of make fun of me. He said, if I ever want to hide anything from Jack, he says, I'll put it in his big book. Because <laughs> you'll never find it. <laughs> and he was right. And so I came to understand and respect the reality of this phenomena that we call alcoholism. That I did not have the academics or even the, the intellectual capacity to be able to understand what was happening to me. Except for the fact that there were many, many people. And it began, it, that, it began with me with Bill W. and somewhere in the far reaches of, of this darkness that I was in, it reached out to me and it said, and it began to dawn on me about what this program is all about. 
I began to learn, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I was very prejudiced towards God. I could not buy the concept in how Pope saw it, the Pope saw it, Billy Graham or all those other big ministers. I couldn't, I couldn't buy that theory that God, God could, could love me in that way that if I've reached all the things that I've made my commitment to, that somehow or another God is going to come down on me as a sinner and I would be punished and I would be back into the same bag that I was in and back into the blackness and into the awful cycle of the hell of our knowledge. But I began to understand that, that somewhere, someplace, and within, within the hearts of people, within the hearts of walls, that God, and I still don't have any fundamental understanding of what this theology of God is about, except for the fact that I was feeling something. You know, there's a song that I heard Frank Sinatra sing, You're nobody until somebody loves you. And this man, Walt, was loving me for all he was worth. He was telling me what I was and what I needed to do. He didn't spare me. One time when I got drunk, and I ran away from, from the town that he was in, he called me and he, he heard about my drunk and he said to me, Jack, was I, was I too hard on you? I said, no, no, Walt, you weren't too hard on me. Except for the fact that the truth could not cope with the realities around my life. I could not cope with my environment. I felt that the the conditions around me should be ideal in order for me to be to be feeling good, in order to be feeling or to be sober, to feeling serene. The conditions had to be ideal. Step two talks to me about that. Step two says. That we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I knew that I did a lot of crazy things when I was drinking. When I was drunk. But this step talks about after the fact that I'm sober. I've come to admit that I'm an alcoholic. And now I'm still, there is still a need to be restored to sanity. And I began to understand that the blackness inside of me. And the feelings that I was feeling in here was not matching with what's going on out here. And for this very reason, or for this very fact, I could not relate to my environment because what was going on out here was not matching with what was going on in here. And I began to behave the way I felt in here. And my behavior in no way matched my the, the, the environment or surroundings that I was in. People said I was crazy. Because began to understand this illness is an inside job. It isn't something that comes as a result of being Indian. It isn't something that comes as a result of being born in a ghetto. It isn't something that comes as a result of a broken marriage or as a result of something terrible that happened to your life. It's a illness that's in here. The blackness is in here. And this particular program was I when I came into it, I was I was so desperately healed. And when somebody told me this spiritual program, I wondered in my own mentality how I could become spiritual. If there was ever an example of a heathen, it was I. But here I was faced. I was in a threshold of something that I could not understand and yet I had to take a leap of faith to go according to what I was told in a big book. This is the why and why. This is the how and why of it. We had to quit playing God. And when I came to the third step, I began to understand something about me and my relationship with my higher power. You know, so many times uh, in my struggle for sobriety, in my struggle for serenity, in my struggle for my goal, and the aspirations that I have about my life and about loving or loving people, loving having a good family, having a good relationship with my wife, I felt so far, so tied up, so so bound for what I wanted to, where I wanted to go. 
Then step three says that I made a decision. I made a decision to turn my will and my life over the care of God. I used to think, well, if I do this now, I'm going to have to quit smoking. I'm going to have to quit cussing here. I'm going to have to quit telling dirty jokes. I can't go out with my friends, you know, and I can't go in a pool hall. I can't do this. I can't do that. And the list went on. And I thought, well, I can't do this. It doesn't work that way. God is a very unique individual. And I thank my higher power for the uniqueness. Because in the way that he related to me, in the way that he related to Bill W. or Dr. Bob and whoever it is in here that has ever found serenity and peace through this wonderful program will know what I'm talking about. I was told one time that an alcoholic died. I went to heaven. And he knocked on the door. And God said, who is it? And he said, I'm an alcoholic, it's me. God says, I don't know you. He knocked again. And God said, who is it? He said, my name is Jack. And I'm an alcoholic, you know me. God said, I'm sorry. I don't know you. The alcoholic fell on his knees. Went into the 11 step, sought through prayer and meditation to improve his contact. God. Then the idea came to him and he knocked again. God said, who is it? The alcoholic said, it's you, God. It's you. You know, as I stand here tonight, I forget I'm here. Forget I'm an Indian. Forget I walk with him. Because I was ushered to the wonderful fellowship of alcoholics and And every person that I've met so far that has touched my life has been a common deliverance, a common love, and a common bond that only those the loneliness, the pain of alcohol. I would like to go through all the steps, but one of the steps that I want to touch on is step eight and nine. Made a list of all persons who have harmed and became willing to make amends for them all. Alcoholics Anonymous is a program of posture. It's a program of standing in, in in line with what is to be. It's a willingness to, to, to be postured or to, to, to do something. I remember, uh, in some of my step nine, I used to think, well, you know, I owe, I owe people over there. I owe some money over there. I, I mean, I ran away from that bill and I ran away from that responsibility. Uh, and then I, and I, and I brought those out in my, in my, uh, in my age step, and I used to think, well, I'll take care of these, God, as soon as I make six bracket income. The funny thing about Alcoholics Anonymous, it, it's a, it, it doesn't work unless the, the person that is working the program experiences some discomfort in what you're doing. Any time that you pay a bill and you have, let's say, a hundred dollars and you got a a thirty thousand dollar bill if you send in fifty dollars, you feel that that affects you because it affects your comfort, it affects your convenience, it does something to you, and nothing is worth unless you could feel the impact of the the returns from it because pain is is beautiful in that sense. You know, like a, like, 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 a, like we were, we were hearing about a, a lady here this evening that had, uh, eight kids. And all through the kids that we talked about, she never once mentioned the pain she suffered and the labor of bringing forth these lives. 
Alcoholics Anonymous is that way. God, in his graciousness through the wonderful program of Alcoholics Anonymous, makes sure that we go through some struggles and pain in order for us to realize the rebirth of what we are to be and to be the kind of human beings that we that we know down deep inside that we are going to be. This is the beautiful thing of the program. And it's always there. In my times that I went back drinking, I was like the, the story that I'm going to close with. That I heard uh, Phil Hansen, I read, I, I didn't hear him, I read it. And Phil Hansen, uh, uh, sick and tired of being sick and tired, he talks about this prodigal son. Having a wonderful time in the fellowship of the family. And then one day, he reached a point where he was unhappy. You see, happiness in Alcoholics Anonymous cannot be achieved directly. It's a byproduct of giving and sharing. And that is why it's so difficult to capture. Because we are taught through Alcoholics Anonymous, and if we are going to be happy, we must involve ourselves in the principle of giving and sharing. Or else it's no good. And so this young man Living in a fellowship of the family, he said to himself, I, don't, I think I don't like this. I think I'll go away. Would you give me my inheritance? And, and the father being loving, he says, go ahead. Have your misery. But like I did, went out, had a great time. Pursuing happiness directly. Buying friends. Partying and all this other stuff that I try to do in trying to achieve happiness, directly involving myself in there. Then something happened. We ran out of money. Like in California, Tennessee, Detroit, all the places that I was in Skid Row. And then he went to the slave market. Looking for a job. Robert wrote home and said, I think I got a job now. Got a job feeding pigs. He fed pigs until he began to look like one. After a while, he began to smell like one. After a while, he began to eat like one. And down there while he was eating and sleeping and, and living like a pig, it came to him. You know those folks back there in the family? Or the fellowship that I left. Having a great life. And here I am perishing. With the blackness. I will go back. I will arise. And whether that's from a drunk. And whether that, that's coming, coming from a disappointment. Of those that are affected. Those that are members of Al-Anon. Those that are members of Al-Ateen. They're affected with disappointment that, that, that believe that life is going to be just a, a bed of roses, that we're not going to encounter any of the, any of the problems and difficulties that we have, that this program has given us the power to overcome the blackness. I will arise. I will. I will. Arise. Go back. And went back. And as he was going back, he was thinking, you know, every time you have a slip or you leave, you leave the program, you have to come back with a story. Huh? I mean, you, you can't come back and say, hey, I, I, I was overcome by blackness and I drank. <laughs> you got to be like Hank Williams Jr., you know. There's a tear in my beard, you know, kind of thing. There's got to be some kind of a, you know, a story that, that's going to, Wrench the heart of those people that you're going to explain to. I'm coming back because. And he was going through, in his mind as he was going to his father, he was rehearsing the best story that he could come up with to touch the heart of his father. And as he was coming up the hill, he could see the figure over the horizon. And as he got closer, he saw that he was dead. He's dead. Fear gripped his heart. Fear. hundred forms of fear. But sometimes it's only the injury of a pride, injury of ego, 
being able to say, hey, I am truly powerless over alcohol or the alcoholic. I am truly powerless and I cannot manage my life. Coming in there and he met his father and he, and he fell on his knees and he, and he looked at the ground and he said, Father, uh, uh, just make me one of your servants. Just make me one of your flunkies. And I'll be okay. And as he fell on his knees, he saw his father's hit, knees hit the ground. And before he could say another word, his powerful arms came around him and said, My son. My son. I gotta be okay. I have gotta feel okay. Folks, that's an okay feeling. This is what you've given me. I, who felt so worthless. I, who felt so insignificant. I, who felt so disgusted. Unwanted and ugly. When you came to me in Alcoholics Anonymous and through the wonderful fellowship of this program, when you put your arms around me, just like that young man, all the stuff that was inside me just raised out. Had a spiritual experience. And if you're struggling with this program, it's because, like Walt said, you are not working this program. If you take a sneak preview, step, having had a spiritual awakening, how? As a result of these steps. As a result of these steps. We try to carry the message that other alcoholics are bad. Let it be.